everyone. Welcome to episode 145 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. Ooh, we're so happy to be back together. We've had a fun couple of weeks because with the last episode, we announced our new logo. And celebrated our five years with the little walk down memory lane. And we've been getting so many lovely emails and notes through social media. And we just want to thank everyone for the good wishes. Yes. Thank you so much. It's really great to hear from you all. And we appreciate your listening and, you know, interacting with us that way. It's just so much fun. Yeah, it's nice to have good things to think about and talk about. So it is indeed. Speaking of good things, we got a few new Patreons. Yes. Jean, Roby and Amy, thank you for joining our Patreon gang. And welcome. And then a couple direct donations, which you can also do through PayPal or sending us a check directly from Alicia and Barb. Thank you both so much. Thank all five of you. And thank you to all of our patrons and donators. We really appreciate your support. We do. It's very helpful. On this episode, we're going to talk about our 19th read along. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. May Angelou. She's very well known as a poet. So I went out and got one of her books. It's the complete collected poems of Maya Angelou. And she also has written a couple cookbooks. And I came across this poem and it just made me laugh out loud. So I thought I'd share it. It's called The Health Food Diner. No sprouted wheat and soya shoots and Brussels in a cake. Carrot straw and spinach raw. Today, I need a steak. Not thick brown rice and rice pilaw or mushrooms creamed on toast turnips mashed and parsnips hashed, I'm dreaming of a roast. Health food folks around the world are thinned by anxious zeal. They look for help in seafood kelp. I count on breaded veal. No smoking signs, raw mustard greens, zucchini by the ton. Uncooked kale and bodies frail are sure to make me run. To loins of pork and chicken thighs and standing ribs so prime, Pork chops brown and fresh ground round. I crave them all the time. Irish stews and boiled corned beef and hot dogs by the scores or any place that saves a space for smoking carnivores. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I just loved that poem. She obviously had a sense of humor. That's yeah, for sure. (laughs) So Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading a book that I believe I posted about on social media a while ago because I had checked it out of the library but didn't get to finish it. But I'm reading it for a new book club that I'm scoping out. It's called Information Hunters. When librarians, soldiers, and spies banded together in World War II Europe. It's by Kathy Pice, P-E-I-S-S. Ooh, it sounds intriguing. Yeah, it's really fascinating so far. I'm just at the beginning stages, but really drew me in. It's making me think a bit because it's about how in the 30s and 40s leading up to the war, American politicians and library scientists and people who cared about information and culture started getting together, finding ways to get information. And information is what they were after about what was going on in Europe with the rise of Nazi Germany and protecting culture. So it made me think about how you and I have talked about the diversity of World War II books that have been coming out in the last 10, 20 years. So much of that is due to these librarians and information hunters who rescued that information. 
And a lot of it was stuff that wasn't classified. It was just regular publications that they secured that were, in some cases, later made top secret, even though they had initially been published, just because of the cultural attitudes, the propaganda that the Nazis were putting out. As I said, I'm just at the beginning stages, so I'll talk a lot more about this next time. But I think we have that wealth of information because of what these folks did. And then also the fact that the Nazis were extreme record keepers. That's the other side of it as well. Right. Yeah. So information hunters, it's out now. It's out in hardcover. If you're interested in history and libraries and people seeking information to protect culture and diversity, you might want to check it out. Sounds good. I'm reading These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant. It's one of those I'd put in the butt clencher category. (laughs) You know things are kind of uncomfortable and something's going to go wrong. It's just how you feel the whole time you're reading it. I'm about two-thirds through. It's about Cooper and his daughter Finch. Cooper was in the Iraq War. He comes back. He has a baby with his high school girlfriend And then she sadly, tragically dies in a car crash after they've had this young baby together. Due to circumstances, he flees with the child, I'm not going to say why, into this cabin, a remote cabin in the woods, where the story starts is this young child is now around eight. So they've been living in this cabin for about eight years because she was a baby when the accident occurred. It's dark. He has some flashbacks about his time in the war. He's also trying to hide. They're hiding because of something that happened that as the story progresses is slowly being revealed. That's all I want to say. I will say that it's blurbed on the back by our buddy Jess Montgomery, the author of the Kinship series that we love, The Widows, The Hollows, and The Stills. Yeah, very cool. Fourth book coming out next year. And she says, Grant's atmospheric novel masterfully ratchets the quietest of tense moments into powerful suspense. And it is very atmospheric. Her writing is very nature-oriented. They spend a lot of time outdoors in this book. Very cool. The cover is really neat looking, too. It's like a wooded, mountainous area. And then in the lower right-hand corner is a little homestead. That's why they can really hide, because they're up in the woods with no one around, they completely survive off of the land with the exception of one of his friends visits them once a year and brings supplies. These Silent Woods, Kimmy Cunningham Grant. It is out now, but uh, thank you to Minotaur Books who provided me with this copy. So Emily, what have you just read? I've only read one book which is unusual, but it was Small World by Jonathan Evison, which is a tome. Is that how you say it? Mm -hmm. A tome. It's 500 pages. I love Jonathan Evison. I love his writing. This book, I just got completely swept away in it. It's told from multiple points of view. It takes place also going back and forth in time between 2019 and the mid-1800s. In the mid-1800s, they were laying the track for the train that was going to connect the East to the West in the United States. The characters are Native American people, a Chinese man who came over during the gold rush to San Francisco, twins that arrive off of the boat 
from Ireland and their mother passes away and they're left to be orphans. They end up in Chicago to start their lives in an orphanage. In the current day, there's also a African-American basketball player, high school player, and his single mother also play a part in the story. Lots of characters, which for me can sometimes be overwhelming. But the way that Jonathan Evison, every novel of his I've read, he's very good about short chapters, headings that help keep you in the know of where you're going, in this case, including dates, because you're going back and forth in time. I loved the story. I'm going to read just a couple parts of it that I think people will find interesting. So the first thing I thought I would read is just the title reveal. And this is from a character named Othello, who's a slave. But throughout the story, he becomes a runaway slave. Understand, Othello, this railroad shall revolutionize mobility as we know it. Imagine, no more must we endure the drudgery of canal travel or these bone-jarring carriage rides. No more tossing about on a riverboat. Just imagine it. New York to Chicago in two days, Othello. And from there, someday, westward across the Great Plains and through the Rocky Mountains, all the way to California in a week's time. A week, Othello. No wagon train, no starvation, no sickness, no death at the hand of savages. Ah, but what a small world it shall be, Othello, when we connect the East and the West. The train plays a very important role because eventually all of these characters end up in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not going to explain why, because that would be mean. (laughs) (laughs) But let me read one other portion too. This is Nora, and she's one of the twins from Ireland. Her circumstances are such that she ended up being adopted by someone where she thought she would be their daughter, but she ended up really being a servant for them. For the first time in all her years at Mr. Seymour's, Nora took a seat in the library, surveying her surroundings. The room was replete with burnished wood and fine furnishings, but in the style of Mr. Seymour, neither extravagant nor conspicuous in its decor. What immediately captured Nora's imagination were the books lining the walls, hundreds of leather-bound editions of varying sizes and shapes. Nora was seized with the impulse to stand up and inspect each one of them, to circle the perimeter of the room and read their leather spines as she ran her fingers across them. What a fortune and blessing it would be to possess so many books, to live and love and prosper inside of them each one a small world in itself. So you can see that Jonathan is bringing this idea of a small world through many different ways into the novel. Oh, I love this book, everybody. It's out January 11th. Would make a great gift. (laughs) I think it's a wonderful book. And I would like to just say, this is a total aside, but Jonathan's written many novels. I had the really good fortune to interview him at a booktopia out in Bellingham, Washington. I've read most of his books. And one of his books, Lawn Boy, has recently been picked up as a banned book and is getting so much. It's it's causing him a lot of heartache. People have even threatened him and his kids' lives over this ridiculously crazy situation The reason it's being banned is because he talks about people who live different kinds of lifestyles and people who aren't, I'm going to say it out loud, white Christian people. 
So there's a big movement going on right now, particularly in Texas, that's causing librarians a lot of stress where government officials are forcing librarians to talk about what's on their bookshelves and justify their budgets. And there's a list of 850 books they're supposed to be looking for. So I just wanted to make people aware of that situation and that there are things you can do. And one of them is to donate to every library. Remember we interviewed Patrick Sweeney on episode 117. Yeah, that's a great nonprofit organization that's helping libraries with these challenges. I just have to say, reading the information hunters, these are exactly the tactics that the Nazis used early on in their rise to attempted world domination by having lists of books that got singled out and that were to be taken out of libraries. So think about that, ladies and gentlemen. And it's really intense. The American Library Association even has an upcoming event for librarians on how to take care of your mental health because of all these challenges. It is a nationwide effort that the right wing is making in our country. Yeah, every library sent us an email and said that censorship that's happening right now can lead to criminal charges for these librarians. I just thought I'd read a quick thing that Jonathan posted on his social media because a student recently reached out to him who wanted to be able to go to her school board meeting at her school where they were going to ban this book called Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison. The student wanted to interview Jonathan to have some direct quotes from him. This is the response to the student. This book is modern realism. A large portion of America lives under similar circumstances as Mike, dealing with wealth inequity, racial assumptions, and sexual identifications questions. The other day, somebody posted this short review on Amazon, which I think illustrates my point perfectly, in quotes. Wow, I've never read a book so closely parallel to my own life experiences. It was funny, frustrating, and both heartbreaking and heartwarming. As this review illustrates, there are large groups of people who are underrepresented in literature. The need for inclusion is real, so that growing up, these people can recognize themselves in characters. I think this is the real underlying reason these people want to ban my book. They don't want representation for people beyond straight, white Christians. They don't want to acknowledge wealth inequity, racial assumptions, or non-binary sexual identifications. And what they're doing with this, the reason they're saying they need to ban it is that there's pornography, an adult male that wants to have sex with a young male, and none of that is true. Often this happens, of course, they've never even read the book. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah. My first introduction to people trying to ban things was, I came across a list of books and music, popular culture things, and this was in the 80s, and I was living in North Carolina at the time, and it was some concerned parents organization. And they had a song on there by Pat Benatar called Hell is for Children, which is a song about the awfulness of child abuse, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's a positive song in that it gives awareness to the situations that go on, but whoever put that on that band list. They either just looked at the title or they didn't want people to be exposed to the reality that there is child abuse. Right. 
as if you don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. It'll disappear. Yeah. 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 It's just mind blowing to me. Yeah. So I feel terrible for Jonathan Evison. I know this has been a real struggle for him. What some people are doing is buying lots of copies of Lawn Boy and giving it away. I don't think it's necessarily the right move to try to donate it to these particular libraries where they're trying to ban it because that could get the librarian in trouble. But it certainly helps support him as an artist. You know, that was a big aside. His new book is called Small World. It is out January 11th. Of course, another way to support him would be to pre-order copies of this book. Right. I really enjoyed it. It was one that I just got completely lost in and gave myself over to for a couple of weeks, like you do with a big 500-page book. Nice. <laughs> what about you? I read a really lovely book, a graphic novel for 8 to 12-year-olds called Garlic and the Vampire by Brie Paulson. She did the illustrations and the story. Adorable, adorable book. I got it through Interlibrary Loan because I saw the title and read a little bit about the synopsis of the book. And I thought that is going to be my end of the semester read treat because my brain would be fried and I would need something lovely. I enjoyed this book so much. I'm showing Emily some of the illustrations. There's Carrot. So (laughs) let me tell you all about garlic. So garlic is a little garlic. She is an anxious little bulb who is always late. So I could relate to her from the first page (laughs) because I am an anxious little bulb who is often late, as Emily can attest. She's always late. Her best friend is Carrot, who is a very put-together person who dresses in a suit and tie. So Carrot was trying to wake Garlic up. And garlic wouldn't get up. And you find out that she's late for the farmer's market where all the vegetables are there to sell their vegetables. And at first I thought, ooh, is this kind of like cannibalism? Like a piece of garlic is selling her garlic that she's grown for people to eat. But then you realize there's witch Agnes who has cast a spell on garlic for her to be embodied to help grow the garlic. And so the same with carrot and the same with celery and some of the other characters in the book that made perfect sense. And it took away all thoughts of cannibalism. (laughs) What happens is there's an old castle in the distance that's been abandoned for a long time. And all of a sudden they see smoke coming out of the chimney and people panic. Oh my God, are the vampires back? Which Agnes is like, you know, it could just be people who are traveling. They need a place to stay. Look, the sky is looking like it could storm. Well, as we all know, garlic repels vampires. And Celery, who is kind of the antagonist of garlic and is called a jerk in the book, is like, well, garlic should go check it out because garlic repels vampires. If anybody goes, it should be her. Oh, thanks a lot, Celery. (laughs) I mean, out of all the vegetables to make a jerk... Celery was kind of a good choice, I think, don't you think? (laughs) It's kind of crunchy. Yeah. Not everybody likes celery. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to make the tomato the bad guy, right? (laughs) Anyway, I digress. I won't give away any more of the plot other than some interesting choices that the author made when it comes to vampire lore. One of the issues I've been pondering lately in my love of vampires, is the fact that it's a crucifix that also repels them, which is a Christian thing. And so if you have a vampire who's Jewish or Muslim or atheist, why would a crucifix work on them? 
mm-hmm. what the author did is instead of putting a cross around garlic's neck, it's a piece of hawthorn. Oh. So I really like that it's all natural things in this book that both help and repel life in general, which I think is a great message. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the illustrations. Yeah, it has a really nice color palette. It's very like autumnly, mm-hmm. autumn, like fall. Yeah. Very emotive. But there are a lot of images without dialogue on them, mm-hmm. you know, that's showing the action and what's happening. I enjoyed it very much. I highly recommend it. It's a great book, again, for 10 to 12-year-olds. And it has a really positive message about doing things that you're afraid of, believing in yourself, which is very important. Yeah, especially at that age. Mm -hmm. And in terms of storytelling, you know, it totally has the hero's journey kind of thing where like the hero gets this call to action Mm -hmm. and will they pick it up or not? Right. That is the question with little garlic. Adorable. Yeah. Brie Paulson also has another, an adult vampire comic called Patrick the Vampire. She self-publishes those. This is her first published, published book. And she's working on the sequel. Oh, nice. Yeah. So this just came out, Garlic and the Vampire. It's also available in Spanish. And it is on a lot of indie bestseller lists already. It could be a good gift for a young person in your life or an older person. I think I'm going to get a copy of that for Rachel, my daughter, who's the school social worker for her office. Yeah. Because she does little book lending. Yeah. That's a library copy that I have. So if you want to check it out. That's great. Well, and then the other book that we both read was I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. It came out in 1969. This was our 19th read-along book. It's autobiography. Yes. A lot of discussion about the difference between autobiography and memoir, why this was autobiography and not memoir. Chris and I started talking about that weeks ago. We had our Zoom conversation on Sunday night with a lovely group of readers, and that question came up also. This was one of seven autobiographies that Maya wrote. Right. She wrote them in part because she was challenged by her editor and her friend and mentor, James Baldwin. So when she eventually got to Harlem and was getting involved in the writing community, she considered herself a poet and a playwright. She wasn't interested in writing anything else. But at a party one night, everyone is telling stories from their childhood. And somebody said to Maya's editor, oh, she should really write an autobiography. She has such great stories. But Maya wasn't interested. So James Baldwin then said to the editor, which I should have written the guy's name down, I apologize. And he said, why don't you use reverse psychology and say how hard it is to write an autobiography, especially one with literary merit? Because maybe if you put it that way, it might nudge her a bit because she's a bit competitive, I guess. So that worked. So (laughs) she picked up that challenge. Seven times. Yeah. And it took her two years to write this book. From what I've read, she pretty much secluded herself to get in touch with her childhood because this first autobiography covers from the time she's about two or three to 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, just in the very beginning, I thought, wow, she has an incredible memory really, and sets scenes so vividly that she goes through in the book. And it does go back and forth in time also. Right. Yeah. So she was apparently born in California, 
but her parents divorced when she and her brother were very young and they got sent to live with the paternal grandmother, who she calls Mama in the book, in Stamps, Arkansas. So that's where she lived for a couple of years at least. I mean, until she was 12, maybe? eight? No, no, eight. Well, she went back and forth a couple times to right. go back and live with her. Well, her parents were divorced. Yeah. To go back and forth and live with them. And in, in St. Louis for a while. Right. In the St. Louis area where... Now, this is when she was eight, and this will be spoilery because it is a read-along. So if you haven't read it yet and you don't want any spoilers, you might want to stop listening or you know just fast-forward through this part for now. But she's raped when she's eight years old by mm-hmm. her mother's new husband. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why this book is banned as well. It's one of the most challenged books. Mm-hmm. To carry on what Emily was saying about her memory and the detail in which she describes things. Maya was 40 or so when she wrote this book, but the way she gets in touch with her younger self, I thought was just really breathtaking because Mm -hmm. the stepfather didn't just like outright attack her one day. They had a situation in bed one day when she had crawled into bed to sleep with her parents and mom got up and left and she was left alone. And the touching that happened was comforting. It's that confusion that happens When you're a young person and you don't know, you don't have context about what's proper and improper when it comes to these things necessarily. So it was confusing because he's paying attention to me. But then when the rape actually happens, he threatens to kill her brother if she tells anyone. And her brother is the major love of her life. But just the confusion of a child going through that situation and then the fear of telling and talking about it I just thought it was amazing the way she captured that. Yeah. Because kids used to be blamed for their own molestation, that the kid must have done something to make the adult do that, which is despicable logic, but that used to be the standard. It does kind of show that confusion that a child feels if an adult questions them in a certain way. Did you like it? What did you do when it was happening? What were you thinking? Mm -hmm. So those confusing answers can confuse adults who are not thinking rationally, I think. What can happen also is that the mother in these situations doesn't believe sometimes because she doesn't want to believe because she knows that that's going to set a course for what happens with her partner. And in this case, to her mother's credit, because Maya is physically harmed, she takes her to the hospital and there ends up being a court case and other things happen. Right. As one of the readers on our Zoom call said, the maternal grandmother who they're with down in the St. Louis area is kind of a mafia head in some ways who has a lot of power in the community. Right. The court case happens. Think about it. This was in 1930. Yeah. I think she was born in 28 or something. So this would have been in like the later 30s. So it is surprising. But, you know, with going to the hospital because she was injured, I think there's also the medical establishment involved. But then the grandmother had connections with the police department as well. Yeah. And then the uncles kind of took care of the problem as well. Yes. We'll leave that to the reader to discover. Yeah, we won't have spoilers galore. But what happens also after the rape is that Maya goes mute. She doesn't talk for many years, which I think is part of what leads her to become a writer and be a storyteller. Because 
people that I know who have done that throughout time, or even if you have a speech impediment, like my son had a speech impediment when he was little, and he used to talk to himself a lot because other people couldn't understand him. And I think Maya did that. I think she had a lot of conversations within herself. She did continue to talk to her brother, I think. Yeah, her brother, Bailey, who was like, I think, two years older, Mm -hmm. who is just the, as I said before, the love of her life. He is everything to her. And they're both readers as kids. So they spent a lot of times in their books and with each other and then doing their chores and going to school. I really enjoyed those mentions of the books that they were reading, Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe. And then Bailey is often reading Huckleberry Finn and Maya Marguerite is her real name is rereading uh, Jane Eyre quite frequently. That was one of the biggest surprises to me is that Maya was not named by birth Maya, that she was named Marguerite, but the nickname came from her brother, Bailey. Yeah, calling her Maya. But then the uh, uh, some of the adults call her Reedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are nicknames that happen. Right. You enjoyed the book, right? I did. I consumed it mainly through audio, but I did read some of the physical book and then I had it on e-reader too for (laughs) nighttime reading in bed. I enjoyed her voice very much because I think I started this book a long time ago and I just, I just wasn't in the mood for it. You know, I'm such a big mood reader Mm -hmm. that I think having the audio really helped get me into it, Mm -hmm. into her story. Yeah. I really liked it too. I had a hard time with the audio, which was funny. There was something about the tone of her voice. It wasn't that I didn't care for it. I loved hearing her read. It just wouldn't stick in my brain, except for the, there are some chapters where there's some singing and that I really enjoyed hearing in her voice. But for the most part, I really enjoyed reading it because I also just felt like Oh my God, her writing is so beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I have tons of little stickies in here and I just really enjoyed the reading of it, the pleasure of the actual reading. Yeah. And I was surprised at the humor Mm -hmm. because I'd heard about the rape and that that is kind of like central to the story. And, uh, but I was so pleasantly surprised by the humor. Yeah. Yeah. There's some wildness that happens in this book too, because at one point, There is the reality of the racism and the white supremacy and the KKK in the South as young people. And after a particular scene that happens, Mama decides the kids really need to get out of there and go to California and live with their mom and not be in the racist South as it was then. Some wildness happens there. Maya Angelou's mom sounds like a big character as well. And the dad, they didn't live together, they're divorced, but they lived in California. I won't tell some of those stories, but one of the things that happens is Maya is a big reader. She spends a lot of times in libraries, and she starts reading The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, which is a lesbian classic, one of the first published books to depict lesbians. And she reads it three times which I'm just like, whoa, once was enough for me. (laughs) Um, She's tantalized by the book. She starts wondering about herself and her own sexuality and her own desires because the book turned her on. So she starts thinking about her sexuality. But then she's confused because she thinks lesbians are hermaphrodites for some reason. She goes to the library and there's not much then. And you have to realize like this is the 1940s 
imagine, you know, there's no internet. There's not books about sexuality as we know them today. So she tries to talk to her mother at one point, which doesn't go very as she planned. So that she's also talking about her sexual development and the development of her own genitals and things like that, which I think that's another probably reason why it gets banned. Because mm, yeah. God forbid we talk about the natural process of the human body. Right, and the vulva. Oh, yeah, even though it's a word in the dictionary. <laughs> so anyway, so she's really wondering about her sexuality and everything. And she decides she wants to have sex with a boy. And I just love her forwardness. She decides on her mark and she's walking one day and he's walking towards her. And so she just says, hey, would you have sexual intercourse with me? (laughs) And I'll just read this part. His response lacked dignity, but in fairness to him, I admit that I had left him little chance to be suave. He asked, you mean you're going to give me some trim? I assured him that was exactly what I was about to give him. Even as the scene was being enacted, I realized the imbalance in his values. He thought I was giving him something, and the fact of the matter was that it was my intention to take something from him. His good looks and popularity had made him so inordinately conceited that they blinded him to that possibility. And I love that, you know. You know, you don't see very many depictions of a woman's desire being so aggressively stated and pursued and she's only 15 16 at this point yeah she definitely went for what she wanted there is no doubt about that yeah given the opportunity right so the whole the kind of the trajectory of the book is that she's this insecure frightened little girl at the beginning of the book and by the end she has gained confidence she has a sense of self that is very strong, although she's questioning a lot of things and exploring life as teenagers do, so that she ends with a much greater sense of herself. So it's an inspirational book as well, I think, in that regard. Yeah. That it does show somebody growing up and growing into themselves. I agree. I really enjoyed it. It does have kind of a surprising ending, which is where our Zoom conversation, we started by talking about the ending, which was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The ending was surprising. It did make me want to pick up the next one in the series, which I think now that my semester's over and I have a whole month of free reading in front of me, my mind is spinning about what I'm going to do. Yes. So I can't totally commit, but I'd like to explore that someday soon. Yeah. Congratulations to Chris, by the way, for finishing her semester. Thank you. Yeah. One more thing I wanted to say about the book and, and the brother Bailey When he is overwhelmed by something that's not understandable to his child mind, he goes mute. He goes silent. And she can see in his face that he has checked out. And he explains to her that when something like that happens, his soul crawls behind his heart and waits there until it's safe to come out again. I just thought that was such a beautiful image, Mm -hmm. depiction of what happens when somebody is completely overwhelmed. Yeah. And also just a beautiful way to, I mean, that's an example of the sort of sentences in this book. There are many of them. Yeah. Yeah. That is beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And then there's a lot of, I think, cultural, historical situations that we're probably more aware of today because we see them in other books and other modes of art, like movies and TV shows about the racism that's encountered Mm-hmm. and the kindness of people as well. Yeah. So it is very all-encompassing kind of book. Yeah. I'm glad we chose it. I'm so happy to have finally read it. 
I agree. And I think it was, again, another one of those books that was made more interesting and robust by reading it with others. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to everybody who joined our Zoom conversation. And if you're still reading it and you want to chat more on Goodreads, please seek out our group there. I plan on getting more active with that again. I I was a bit overwhelmed this semester. I have to say, like, I wasn't as overwhelmed as the first in terms of the workload, but it was a lot of work. Next semester, I plan on taking just two courses instead of three. Yeah. Because I need more balance in my life. Balance is good. Yeah. I'm not in a super hurry to finish the program. Right. That's really good. So we'll be announcing our next read along in the upcoming, well, not the next episode, but probably the one after that, maybe. I think it'll be the next episode. You think we're going to figure it out by then? I do. (laughs) I have confidence. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we have so many ideas bouncing around in our heads (laughs) and and having conversations. I think it's every other day we text each other. What about this as a theme? Yeah. It's fun. We have fun. (laughs) So did you go on any Biblio adventures? So I did. Laura and I just went the other day. It was her birthday recently, and one of her friends got tickets for her and me, lucky me, I got to tag along, to a play called Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley. This is by Lauren Gunderson and Margaret Melcon. And it was at Playhouse on Park, which is a great theater up in West Hartford, up where the gentleman caller lives. (laughs) (laughs) We love the theater. Uh, One of the founders is a friend of Laura's from way back when. And so Miss Bennett, as those of you who are Jane Austen fans know, the Bennett family. Yes, it is that Bennett family. The action starts about two years after the ending of Pride and Prejudice. Lizzie's married to Mr. Darcy. Jane is married to Bingley. And Mary, who is the sister in Pride and Prejudice, who's kind of just dull and only wants to read, and she plays the piano very badly, is the focus of this play. Mm. And she's kind of matured into her own. Now that she has pretty much the house to herself, she gets to practice piano. She's become very proficient. She's reading a wide variety of things, has a very curious mind. And the older sisters are kind of woken up a bit to the fact that she is not the same Mary that they knew. I'll just leave it at that. Laura told me some of the backstory on the writing of the play and that Lauren Gunderson and Margot Malcon, their writing partners, they were thinking about, we need to create some other Christmas-themed plays that can be performed annually that are not just Charles Dickens mm-hmm. and The Nutcracker and things like that, that they're great, but we need a little bit more diversity and variety So they thought that that would be a great thing to do, Christmas at Pemberley, which is Darcy's ancestral home. I enjoyed it. I really like Lauren Gunderson. She is a witty feminist writer. So there's a lot of good power scenes in here and great lines. And she knows her Jane Austen. If you are in the Connecticut area and you want to see this, they have extended this show to December 23rd because it's doing really well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. How about you? I did. I went to Atticus Bookstore in New Haven with the Gentleman Caller, 
I wanted to get a copy of Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart, which I did. It is a beautiful book. Oh, I didn't even know she had a new one coming out. Yeah, it's gosh, it's so heavy and big. It's kind of like a coffee table book. Nice. Um, oh, yeah, I've seen that cover of that. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just read on the back. It says, in Atlas of the Heart, Brown takes us on a journey through 87 of the emotions and experiences that define what it means to be human as she maps the necessary skills and an actionable framework for meaningful connection. She gives us the language and tools to access a universe of new choices and second chances, a universe where we can share and steward the stories of our bravest and most heartbreaking moments with one another in a way that builds connection. It's really beautiful inside. It's very colorful. It's different than her other books. This is definitely going to be one that I jump into over the holidays. Nice. Looks like there's some photographs in there. Yeah. Again, Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection in the Language of Human Experience by Brene Brown. Atticus Bookstore is one that I love in New Haven. I rarely get down there. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast. When I was in college, I did a quarter internship in New Haven at a restaurant, which is right down the street from Atticus. And Atticus was the first bookstore I'd ever been to that sold coffee and scones in a bookstore, which I loved, but also found slightly horrifying because people <laughs> would read books they hadn't bought, like and sit and have a coffee. But anyway, they still have a beautiful bakery. It's all different than when I was in college. Yeah. Now, do they still have the counter that you set out? They have a different counter than okay. when I when I first came here, it was like this circle in the middle of the bookstore. It was really cool. Yeah. And now they've got a whole restaurant and it's much fancier. Oh, probably okay. is a better way to say it. Yeah, because yeah. I like sitting at the at the counter. They that, still have a counter. It's just okay, square. Just, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I did another Biblio adventure. It was a Zoom conversation through the New York Public Library. And it was a conversation with Andrew Pedigree and Arthur Der Wedum. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly or if I even wrote it down correctly, come to think of it. <laughs> they were in conversation with Jane Kamensky about their new book called The Library, A Fragile History. These two gentlemen have written together before. I look forward to checking out more of their books. This one sounded really fascinating. It does take you through the history of libraries and their fragility we think of the library as these institutions that are here and around forever. But libraries tend to have a really short lifespan, which is something to think about. Another thing, too, is the way libraries, at least here in the U.S., we have this stereotype of them being places that are very quiet. You know, in the stereotypical library in her cardigan going, shh. <laughs> <laughs> which is really not the case anymore. Libraries are much rowdier places than they were when I was growing up. And one of the authors explained that like in the Renaissance, the libraries were loud places as well. It was usually a place that was created and supported by gentlemen. And so they would have their gentlemen friends in and walk around talking about the books while drinking and things like that. I look forward to checking out this book because they didn't go into a ton of detail about the book itself. And even some person who was attending wrote in the chat, like, can we get on to what this book is about? You know, and I thought, well, I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation very much. You know, I know that's always hard, though, because I've been in many events like that, where you're like, but I don't know what the book's about. Right? Yeah. yeah. But one of the things I enjoyed was they talked about how they co-write a book. That was one of the questions that the moderator had. 
And what they do is they kind of decide the chapters that they're going to have, and then they get assigned their chapters that they're going to write. And with all of their books, from the beginning, they had said, whatever the person wrote is accepted by the person who's coming to check it out, to read it over, to maybe add some things or maybe judge things, but they could not take things out. And I thought that that was really interesting, you know, so there's no arguments about that. Mm -hmm. I think it's really neat that more people are writing books together. Mm -hmm. As one of the authors said, you know, people in the sciences and the social sciences write together all the time. And he thinks people in the humanities should do it more than they are. Hmm. That was the library of fragile history. If the New York Public Library has a link to the recording, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, and reminder to people that we do put the show notes on bookcougars.com. We list everything that we talk about. And I actually just started doing something new in the show notes that I forgot to mention. And this was an Aunt Ellen hint. She listens to another podcast where they timestamp every book they talk about. That's a little bit too much for me to do. But I am now timestamping our segments. So there's a timestamp for currently reading, just read, Biblio Adventures, etc. So if you listened to us and you want to say, oh, what was that Biblio Adventure they went on? You can go to the show notes and see the timestamp for when we start talking Biblio Adventures. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you, Aunt Ellen, for the idea. And thank you, Aunt Ellen, for something else. In our anniversary episode, we kind of joked about what's going to happen in the coming years if we keep this up for another, you know, decade. Book Cougars to Geriatric Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. We were thinking that the word geriatric has a medical tone to it. We didn't really, nothing against the word, but it does sound kind of clinical, yeah. you know? And I happened to catch an episode of The Golden Girls the other day, and I thought, oh, the Book Cougars to Golden Girls on the Hunt for a Good Read. That's kind of cool. Yeah. But then we also got this really great email from Aunt Ellen, which was forwarded from Linda right. of Berkeley. And she shared with us the word grimalkin, which I thought was fascinating. Some of the background on this, it was a word that was coined by Shakespeare in his play Macbeth. And the word was originally gray malkin, which is a gray cat, plus malkin, which is the nickname for Matilda or Maud back in the day, you know, 1500s or so. Grammelkin is what one of the witches in Macbeth calls her familiar. Mm. Over time, that got kind of crunched down into Grimalkin by the 1630s. I guess that was uh, the first maybe recorded use of that word. I'm going to have to practice that word if it's going to come out smoothly as our catchphrase as we get older. Grimalkin. Yes. The book cougars, two Grimalkins on the hunt for a good read. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. Not as fast, but just as stealthy. (laughs) We can still prowl. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, we really do appreciate our listeners piping in and having opinions. Please feel free to share them anytime. Absolutely. It makes our day. Yes. I also went on a virtual earbud podcast adventure. I've been kind of somewhat obsessed with Debbie Millman's podcast, Design Matters, so much so that I dreamed about marrying her wife, Roxanne Gay, the other day. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd had any (laughs) follow-up dreams about that. No no (laughs) follow-up (laughs) dreams. But Debbie Millman's been podcasting for 17 years, Wow, which is shocking to me because frankly, I didn't think there were podcasts 17 years ago. But 
she interviews so many interesting people. And I just recently listened to her conversation with Anita Hill. Hmm. And Anita Hill has a new book out called Believing Our 30 Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And when we were talking about I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, it made me think about part of their conversation when Debbie says, Anita, why did you name it Believing? And she said, throughout the course of my life, I keep thinking people are going to believe things. Like when you go to the Senate hearings, for example, and say some truths about someone who might become a Supreme Court justice and no one believes you, things like that. And it's happened throughout history. So she just felt it was the perfect title for what she was trying to say. And when we were talking about I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and you were saying people don't believe children People definitely don't believe sexual assault survivors at all. I mean, still. They still want to do the blame game of, well, if you weren't wearing that skirt or you weren't this or you weren't that. So it was a very interesting conversation. Debbie Millman does a ton of research. So we learn about Anita Hill's childhood. I didn't know she was the youngest of 13 children, for example. I highly recommend Debbie Millman's podcast in general, but this interview with Anita Hill, and it made me, I've been thinking about reading that book, but I think now I really want to listen to it on audio. Nice. Does she narrate it herself? I think so. I think so. Yeah, Yeah. I remember watching some of those hearings that were, you know, televised Mm -hmm. back in the day and just being so annoyed that they weren't believing her and that Mm -hmm. they were like making her the guilty one. Yeah. And she talks about how she just didn't expect that at all. Yeah. So, and then we saw it again recently. So I think that's part of the point she's trying to make with this book, you know, 30 years. She, that's the time span she's talking about. Yeah. Well, patriarchy is still in control at this point. They're not going down easy. So let's talk about something funny. Nice segue. <laughs> yes. I did want to say before we get into our next segment that to remind people that we have this new logo, we're really excited about it. We made bookmarks, which we sent to everyone throughout time who has donated to the Book Cougars. And one of the quotes on the back of the bookmark, we made three bookmarks with three different quotes. And one of them is from Pat Conroy's book, The Prince of Tides. And it says, You get a little moody sometimes, but I think that's because you like to read. People that like to read are always a little fucked up. One of our favorite (laughs) quotes. We agree. If you donate in the future to the Book Cougars, you will get a bookmark. But when we sent these out to some of our listeners and donators, um, we heard back from them. And one of them was our buddy Robin. And she said, I love the Pat Conroy quote. Just so you know, my book group has a tradition of swearing, usually at the beginning of every meeting. We call ourselves the Matriarchal Potty Mouth Book Group and Social Club as an homage to how our group was formed. We attended a conversation with Sherman Alexi and Leslie Marmon Silko many years ago, and at that event, Alexi shared a story about how as a boy, he used to listen to his aunties as they sat around sharing hilarious stories, and he marveled at their stories in potty mouths. After that event, we formed our group and we honor these women by swearing at least once during our meeting, usually at the beginning. But of course, we're not recording ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I love how they swear at the beginning. I would like to just know how they put it in context or maybe there's no context. Yeah, let's start this fucking meeting. Yeah, that'll do. Maybe. (laughs) 
Let's get this fucking party started. Oh my God. I love it. Thank you, Robin. That just made me laugh so hard when that email came through. So Chris, we have a joint upcoming jaunt planned. We do. We have one planned for next week. Knock on wood. We're going to head west, which is always throwing me because west of where we are is towards New York City. Yeah. And, you know, growing up as a Midwest girl, I always, New York was always east. Yeah. Anyway, we are heading to Western Connecticut. Right. We're going to check out House of Books in Kent, Connecticut. Yeah. They just recently reopened after like a two-year huge renovation of their building. They had been in a temporary building, so they stayed, quote, open. But we can't wait to go and see their new digs. Not that we saw the old version. (laughs) Their refurbished (laughs) digs. And um, if the uh, social media gods and our equipment doesn't fail us, we're hoping we might do some live streaming as we do our adventure. Yeah, that'll be next Tuesday, the day that this episode goes live. Right. Look for us on social media. Do you have any upcoming reads? I have a ton of upcoming reads, but I don't really know which one is going to be next because... They're just there waiting for me, and I don't have to make a choice. I don't have to prioritize my reading. It's nice. Oh, my God. It was always my favorite thing of ending a school semester was being able to read for pleasure, Mm -hmm. unencumbered reading for pleasure. Yeah. I went to the library yesterday and got a stack of a wide variety, a novel, a nonfiction, a poetry collection, And uh, a couple other things. So we'll see which one is going to end up in my hands after I finish the Information Hunters. Well, I got, I'm so excited, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois by Honoré Fannin Jeffers. Mm. This is hitting a lot of top 10 lists. It's been up for some awards. I I don't remember which ones, but it's a tome. I seem to be in the tome mood these days. (laughs) I am going to really try to have a couple days over the holidays of just like, cup of tea, reading days. I'm going to dig into this one. I'm really looking forward to it. How many pages? I should say thank you to Harper for sending the copy. It is 800, I think. Yeah. Nice. It's heavy. (laughs) Beautiful cover. (laughs) It is beautiful. Yeah. And I've seen a couple interviews with her and I'm just thrilled to get starting on this one. In an episode in January, we'll be talking about our top reads of 2021 And we're hoping to have a special guest to do that with us. Yes. We'll each give our top 10 reads and or listens audiobooks. And we'd like to invite you, our listeners, to email us your top 10 reads of 2021. No cheating. People (laughs) cheated last year. Send your top 10 reads. You're welcome to put them in genre if you want. You don't have to do that. We're not going to separate them that way. I think I did fiction and nonfiction last year. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the yeah. author and the title. Yeah. And that, that should be good. Yeah. And Emily, yeah. thank you, compiles all of these things into a magical spreadsheet. What's really cool, I just got such a kick out of it last year, seeing what books were only on one person's list. And then some books had, what, five or six? Yeah readers in common. So it was kind of neat to see that. And it wasn't always new releases necessarily. No, and they don't have to be books that came out in 2021. We want to make that clear. Just your top books that you read this year. And a reminder also, if you're still looking for gifts, if you purchase books through bookshop.org, it helps independent bookstores and it helps the book cougars. 
on our bookshop.org page, we have the list of the 2020 top reads of listeners and our 2020 top reads also. It's a great list of books. If you're looking for gifts still, I highly recommend you go there. It really is. And another great gift idea from another affiliate of ours is Libro.fm. You can get a gift subscription for a loved one. I think it comes in three month, six month, and then a whole year package. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting somebody a subscription that's three books could be a nice introduction to them for audiobooks if somebody's not really sure if they want to get an app. Right. And reminder, if you use Book Cougars as the code, you get two books for the price of one. Yes. Also, I did my donation to Bink Foundation the other day. They have a special offer right now. I'm not sure how long it lasts where you get one month free of Libro.fm to try. Nice. I think it starts in January. So give all those things a look-see, as they say. Yeah. Also, our listener Colleen sent us a list of the best books of the year compilation. There's a blogger that goes by Large Hearted Boy, and he puts together on his blog top book lists of the year. It's really cool. So I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And so coming up next is our conversation with Colleen about her biblio adventure to Canada. She went to Quebec and had a really exciting weekend there. So enjoy our conversation with Colleen. Thanks, everybody. Happy Happy reading. Well, we are so excited to welcome back one of our listeners and a past guest, Colleen Olson. Colleen was on episode 27 way back when, and she gave us um, a bit of a biblio adventure recap of going to the American Writers Museum when it first opened in Chicago back in 2017. So welcome back, Colleen. Thank you. Great to be here. (laughs) Colleen just went on a super fantastic biblio adventure, an international biblio adventure. So of course, We had to follow along with her and live vicariously through her Instagram account. And then we asked Colleen to come on and share her biblio adventure with us um, for listeners, because we think a lot of people are going to be interested in what you were up to. Well, just to begin, what made me decide to go to Quebec City in November of second November of the pandemic uh, was I recently started reading the Louise Penny Inspector Gamache series. I know I'm really far behind everyone on a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, and you guys, of course. And I will say I bought the first book in Denver in 2019, um, but it was almost like overwhelming because I'm like, I know I'm going to get into this and I need to be able to dedicate myself to the series. So I put it to the side and I brought it finally to my office in February of 2020, just had it on the back burner because I was going to finish a book. And and then it sat on my desk for the pandemic. And I eventually like bought a second copy of it because I was, I, I don't know, it just seemed like a good fall thing to do this year. And I was able to retrieve the other copy and give it to a friend. So I feel like that, that's okay. That's all good. <laughs> um, but yes, I zoomed through the first six volumes and Bury Your Dead takes place well, there are three storylines. The Gamache storyline, he's walking through Quebec City. He is reminiscing and sort of recovering from physical and emotional trauma of uh, recent happenings. And so he, he retired or he, he takes his leave in Quebec City 
to visit uh, his mentor and previous boss. It was just a beautiful, a beautiful book, a beautiful representation of a city. And I just knew I had to go. <laughs> How many times the, I'm sure you guys and anyone who's a reader, you just like fall in love with a place in a book. And it's just, I go to kayak.com and check what, what's the airfare. What would it be like to go there? And um, I think because I'm a little stir crazy after being at home, working from home most of the time for the last year and a half, I actually bought the ticket and just went. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was a beautiful, it was great. And there's such a sense of history too. I mean, the, the city's been, it was founded officially in 1608, which just for some reason, I, I don't think of most cities that are in this continent as being that old, which is definitely not the way to think about it, but I was, this is a, a place that's close by that I can get to and just dive into 400 years and see what's the sites and see what Gamash did. I don't know. It was fantastic though. Even with all the conditions, with there were some closures and restrictions because of COVID, uh, but it also it was not the height of tourist season, but I knew that going in and it was still an amazing trip. When you were reading the book, did you, you know, did you know when you were reading it, like I'm going to go to Quebec City and you started to highlight places you wanted to go or did you make that decision when you were done and then you had to go back and kind of decide which points of interest you wanted to go to? Well, I will say like books one through five, I was like, I want to, like, is Three Pines a real place? I want to go there. I want to be friends with all, you know, I'm, I obviously am not a crazy person. But, like, I'm it's, a, it's a common reaction but, to that series. Yeah, yeah I, I just like, I think that um, besides the plot, besides the specific community, like Louise Penny really is a great ambassador for Canada and French Canada. Quebec in, in, you know, specifically, um, because she, even I think in the first or the second book, there's just a scene where everyone is curling and it's just a hoot. I don't know. It's just, it's fantastic. And I think Ruth Zardo, her poetry, I know like, I think Margaret Atwood is one of the people that she really is the author, but, um, you know, she's a Canadian poet and just general writer, obviously. Um, so it, I, it just really captures like a spirit of a place that um, I wanted to go to. And then when I hit the Quebec city thing, I, I was like, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That book. Um, and, and just the way, so Gamash is there, he's recuperating and he spends part of his days in the literary and historical society, the Linton mm-hmm. Hest, where things happen. We won't give any spoilers, um, but yeah. you you were actually able to go and visit this organization. I I was. Um, yeah, I mean, like as you're talking about the book, it hits all the right notes. It has the history of the city. It has the mystery. And he's sitting and doing research in a library. I'm like, that's um, that's I'm in love. <laughs> I want to be Gamash. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was able to go. It took a few tries. You had to become a member in order to visit the library, which I did. <laughs> it was it was twenty Canadian dollars, so it's about it was like fifteen or sixteen dollars. I went in at ten on Friday, and they said come back tomorrow. I went in again at ten the next day, and they said come back <laughs> in a few hours, um, and you have to be a member. And I mean, it, I don't mean to complain or anything, but it was. 
I mean, I just kept on trying. So I had like a military history tour booked that day through the hotel. I do not have any French. In the book, there is a character um, who's an English-speaking librarian at this Lit in His Society. She's trying to communicate with a French-speaking police officer. And she says something like, the night is a strawberry. And I, I was like, this is totally going to be me if I try <laughs> anything beyond, like, I don't speak French. Um, yeah, so I, I was able to finally, like, get um, access to it and uh, for 15 minutes in the library. And I say, like, um, I was able to get a 15-minute slot in the library you know, when you walk into a room of books, it just sort of takes your breath away of just wall-to-wall books. The room you walk into is just all these, you know, it's just amazing. You're like the heart flutters and you're like, oh, I'm here. Um, it was really cool. I asked the library assistant, I want to say she was a university student, and we had a conversation as I was leaving, but I asked her how many people come in saying that they just read Barrier Dead by Louise Penny. And she was like, it used to be a lot before the pandemic, but that slowed the limited hours and just limited travel. The Louise Penny books were above the door that I just walked in. Probably easy for them to just be like, hey, we'll find you. And then there were, yeah, there were some like with the, in the French language, uh, which was kind of fun to see the covers of those. I mentioned I talked to the university student who was working there and we discussed languages because I was, you know, like, just be desolate. I don't speak French. And she, <laughs> um, I have a library card now and access to their online catalog, which has several like, English language titles, which is like, you know, really great for this time of year because of all the end of year lists and the mad rush of like all the holds that are at the Chicago public library. <laughs> but now I have two places that I can look. They have like, I thought it was cool. They have a specific section for Quebec authors on their website. Nice. And there, there are a lot of Louise Pennies, but also other authors that I'm excited to check out and look into. That's great. Oh, very cool. Maybe you could send us a list and we can yeah. yeah, recommend them to people as well of who want to explore more. Um, so you mentioned Shadows on the Rock, which was Cather's novel that was set in historic Quebec. And so with Barrier Dead and Shadows on the Rock, did you kind of create a little tour for yourself to go around the city? I know I you didn't did, have a lot of time. So I arrived Thursday night and I left on Sunday, which I knew was just going to be a bit of time. And I... I did have a COVID testing situation that I had to deal with. So it took away some more time, but I, you know, that's just the nature of travel, I guess. And especially with the COVID, I did make a Google maps list of all the places. There's actually a tour that people will give, but this time of year, it's not like a a running tour where you just can buy like a $20 ticket or something. It was going to be like 150 or something just for, for me. And I was like, well, why I pay that and then also rob myself of a good time of rereading Barrier Dead, <laughs> which I did. And in that, the second read through, every street name, every place name, I did uh, write down at, next to like the chapter. So I made a list of, and it turned out to be like 28 specific places mm. on Google Maps. There's quite a lot of elevation, but there is a very walkable city. The old town is kind of, it's kind of small. So I was able to sort of, just mentally tick off a bunch of boxes and and you can go on the app and like check I've been here. I am here or something (laughs) like that. Um, so I could sort of track my movements that way as well. I'm like totally in this history kick right now because (laughs) 
it's like familiar because it's the new world. So like we have U.S. history, but it's also different because it's the French who were there first. But anyway, um, there's uh, an old settlement that was more like present in the Willow Cather book. And then there's a bunch of new stuff that is barrier debt is maybe 10 years old, maybe. Um, so, I mean, that's, you can kind of see the natural characteristics of the city and imagine being the Cecile and Jacques, they're like young children that are running around up and down the cliffs. And there's, uh, there are still some churches and things that are standing from that time, but the old city walls are the only things that have never really been rebuilt. And they have like Quebec city has the claim to fame that North of Mexico and I think only Mexico City and Quebec City still have, like, the original city walls um, in place. Gamache mm, yeah. is a fan of Quebec history. And so as he's walking and contemplating the places that he's looking at, the guy who always whispers and you can never hear what he says yeah. because <laughs> his, his real voice is, is, is like, a million decibels or something. I could see both of the books and, and see how time has moved. I mean, like, it makes sense that the there would be squalor and poorer people along the riverfront uh, and like the wealthier side would be safe up top on like the, up, up the cliff mm-hmm. both of those books captured the place really well i mean i'm not surprised that will cather was able to do that because setting is always like almost if not definitely a character in all of her books i feel like yeah for sure i haven't been there it's been a long dream of mine to go so I'm really glad that you have a library card now and maybe oh, yeah. um, you can get me in one of these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that would be that would be such a fun we should do that. We should definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for when I can go back. I think they've tightened travel restrictions because of Omicron uh, recently. So I'm I was very happy to get out because um, I haven't been traveling, but mm-hmm. you know, happy to stick around and wait a little bit until things are easier. Yeah. Um, and safer. I don't want to jeopardize any, um, anyone else. So, right. Uh, we should definitely go <laughs> like, and there's a couch for Gamash <laughs> It's under the statue of general Wolf and that the library assistant pointed that out. She's like, you should go sit there. <laughs> That's very cool, Colleen. So an international book cougars, biblio adventure could possibly be in the future. Yes, for sure. I would like to know a little bit more about the hotel that you stayed at. We saw these oh my beautiful God. pictures. It is gorgeous. And they were so kind. And um, my favorite was going up to the concierge and saying, uh, je suis désolé, uh, anglais, por favor. And I switched to my Spanish. Because that's what I, oh, my God. Well, I I speak both Spanish and French very poorly, Colleen. So when I was traveling with my daughter in Spain, I kept saying, ordering Cafe Ole at breakfast, and my daughter was just, Mom, Cafe Con Leche. You know, as if you need to give, you know, I needed to give her any reason to roll her eyes at me. But I did it every morning. I could not get the, I couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. So. The third day in a row, like, I can't, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Which I want. <laughs> we have such green-eyed envy, Colleen. It was so fun to watch you when you were there, you know, watching, following your Instagram account and just knowing that you were walking in Gamash's footsteps. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. And thank you so much for coming on tonight to tell us a bit about your adventure up there. Yeah. Oh, thank you for letting me. <laughs> I've been... 
it's just like so pleasant to talk about like about travel and nice to hear people say they like like the travel pictures because I feel like you know I could just show people all, all day. <laughs> well, Colleen um, said you. she'd share a couple photos. We will sh- reshare them on our social media as this episode goes live too, just so you can see some of the great shots Colleen took of the area. Yeah, thanks so much, Colleen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.